to uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 41, and we'll be looking at resurrecting a dead conscience, a dead conscience tonight. Resurrecting a dead conscience. Some 21 years had passed since Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Much had happened in Joseph's life since that time. There had been many valleys, there had been many trials, uh, there had been many mountaintops and victories as well. And here we have Joseph, uh, a boy becomes a man. A slave has become a prime minister. Now the passage we have before us this evening allows us to see many of the events of this man's life really come full circle. Uh, Joseph sees his brothers again after 21 years. The last time they met, Joseph was the one uh, at a disadvantage. Uh, His brother treated him roughly, had cast him into a pit. Uh, This time, the shoe is on the other foot. Uh, This time, they are treated roughly, and they're thrown into prison. And so when Joseph's brothers see him after all this time, they don't recognize him. Uh, Joseph, however, does recognize them. And God uses this encounter to work in the lives of these ten brothers of Joseph. God uses these events to resurrect the conscience of, Uh, they silenced many years ago. And so our study takes us uh, to this idea of resurrecting a dead conscience. I want us to learn what a conscience is, uh, what it does, and how it can be protected tonight. Before we consider these thoughts, though, concerning the conscience, I want to first talk about just what a conscience is and what it does. So let's talk about what a conscience is First of all, the dictionary would define the conscience as the inner sense of what is right or wrong in one's conduct or motives impelling one toward right action. Now, if we uh, uh, find this word in the New Testament, of course, it's in the Greek there, and the word means to know together. The conscience is a gift from God to all men. In Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27, it says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. And it gives mankind the power to make a moral judgment. Now you'll find the word uh, some 31 times in the New Testament. And someone has said this about the conscience. The conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right, and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. The conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God. It is a human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by the light of the highest standards we perceive. Uh, when, When we violate our conscience, it condemns us, triggering feelings of shame, anguish, regret, consternation, anxiety, disgrace, and even fear. When we follow our conscience, it commends us, bringing joy, serenity, self-respect, well-being, and gladness. Now, no doubt you've heard that phrase, let your conscience be your guide. Let your conscience be your guide. Maybe you remember watching the 
Walt Disney movie, I think it was, Pinocchio and Jimmy Cricket. And there's a song in there that this uh, somebody sings, I don't know who it was, but they, the, part of the, song, the main part of the song is, let your conscience be your guide. But is that what we're to do? Let your conscience be your guide. Is that the guide that you are to have? Well, the, really, that's kind of the, the humanistic way of looking at it. Actually, the conscience should act as the rudder of, of the soul. Uh, it's not so much a guide, but maybe an early warning system which tells us that there's danger ahead. When we go against the warnings of our conscience, we, it punishes us with feelings of guilt and shame and regret. And when we honor the conscience, it rewards us with feelings of peace and happiness and joy. One writer said that a violated conscience is a flash of hell. Another writer says that an honored conscience rewards us with a pat on the back from God. Well, regardless of how it may seem at times, everyone has a conscience. You'll say, well, that person doesn't even have a conscience, you know. Look at the things they're doing. But everyone has one. And if that is true, then why can some people do the things they do with no shame, no guilt, no remorse for their actions? If everyone has a conscience, why do people do the things they do? For instance, how can some Muslims destroy innocent life in the name of their God? How can some women abort a baby with no remorse? Where is their conscience? And questions of that nature could go on forever and ever. We could could ask many of those kind of questions. Well, the answer lies, I believe, in this statement. The conscience however, is not infallible, nor is it the source of revelation about right and wrong. Its role is not to teach us moral and ethical ideals, but to hold us accountable to the highest standards of right and wrong that we know. The highest standards of right and wrong that we know. And so the conscience can only react to what it knows and what it's been taught. If the conscience is taught that the Bible is the Word of God, that the Bible is the supreme standard for right and wrong, the conscience will will react when there's any deviation from the teachings of God's Word. If the conscience is taught that Islam or Mormonism or Hinduism is the truth, then the conscience will react to when those standards are being violated. And so if the conscience is taught that cursing and drinking and wicked living are okay, then the conscience will have no problem with those things. You get the idea? The conscience is related to what we've been taught, what we know. Someone else has said this concerning the conscience, Every conscience needs instruction. Its delicate mechanism has been thrown off balance by the fall. And just as a bullet will reach the 
bullseye only if the two sights are in correct alignment. So correct moral judgments are delivered only when the conscience is correctly aligned with the Scriptures. And that is why it can be very dangerous to let your conscience be your guide. That might be a good practice if the conscience has been trained in the right way. If, however, the conscience has been given a false standard of truth, it will guide you in the direction you have been led, and it will lead you even deeper into error. And that having been said, the conscience is still a great gift from God. Most people are born with some sense of what is right and what is wrong. And this is because God has written His law into the heart of man. And thus, if you fill this room tonight with atheists, most of them would agree with us tonight that murder and stealing, those kind of things are wrong. Those things violate our conscience, and most people believe that they are wrong. I want to consider the conscience as we move through our passage tonight, because this passage has something to say to us about the conscience. Joseph's brothers had long ago silenced their consciences, but God is about to bring to life what they had longed to kill. They had longed to suppress. So let's learn a little bit about our own conscience as we consider the thoughts in this passage. First of all, how the conscience is seared. How the conscience is seared. If you remember the story of the early days of Joseph's life, you'll remember that his brothers sold him as a slave and they killed an animal. They put the animal's blood on their brother's coat and brought the coat to their father and they told him that they had found the coat. Jacob assumed the worst, of course, and he thought, or he bought the end of the lie. He declared that Joseph must have been killed by a wild animal. And then old Jacob entered a time of mourning that lasted over 20 years. And as they sold their brother and they watched their captors haul him away, it must have tugged at their hearts, no doubt. When they lied to their father, they saw the grief and the anguish on his face, and as they lived with grief year after year, it must have touched them on some level. But you know, as time passed, the feeling of remorse and the guilt was silenced. It was suppressed. After a while, they probably thought less and less of Joseph. They may have even come to the place where they believed their own lie. These brothers seared their consciences. They came to the place where their hearts stopped speaking to them about their guilt. Now the Bible tells us uh, that it's possible for a person to do just that. 1 Timothy 4.2 says, Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. This verse refers to people who have ignored their conscience to the point where it no longer speaks to them. It no longer bothers them to do the things that once bothered them. They have silenced the warning system until it can no longer be heard. Back in 1984, 
there was a crash of an airplane. The Avianca, Avianca Airlines jet was flying over Spain. It crashed into a mountain. Everyone on board of that jet died instantly. When investigators found the black box, they were amazed as they listened to the cockpit recording in the minutes just prior to the crash. The plane's collision avoidance system began to speak to the pilot. It warned him of an object that was in the flight path of the plane. And the computerized voice of a female speaking English was heard to say, Pull up! Pull up! Pull up! Over and over again. After a few moments of this, the pilot was heard to say, Shut up, gringo! And with that, the pilot turned off the system. He just ignored the warning. He flipped the switch, and a few moments later, everyone on that airplane died. And this is what happens when the conscience is ignored. When we start to do something we know is wrong, the conscience tells us, pull up, pull up. And if we heed that voice and we do what our conscience tells us, then things turn out well. If we ignore the voice and do as we please, we've begun to process the process of searing the conscience. The next time, the voice of the conscience will not be heard as loudly or as clearly. And if we continue to ignore our internal warning system, the conscience will eventually stop warning us at all. You see, every time that we ignore the voice of the conscience, we are restraining or retraining, excuse me, retraining the conscience. We're teaching it that things which we believed were harmful, they're okay now. You see, we're re-educating our conscience. When we retrain or re-educate the conscience, we're headed toward a crash. Now, of course, our culture tells us that we need to silence the voice of guilt. They say that only weak people have problems with right and wrong. Because there really is no right or wrong. There really is no absolutes. Everything is relative. Our culture tries to silence the conscience. And we need to be very careful about how we treat the conscience. If the conscience tells us something is harmful, we need to heed the voice of the conscience. It's dangerous to go against the conscience when it sends out the warning signal. If we ignore the signals it sends us, we eventually silence the voice of the conscience. When the conscience says, pull up, we must never say, shut up, gringo. I read about someone who had an old lab dog, that is. And they kept the dog in their yard and they used one of those invisible fences to keep the dog in. Maybe some of you have done that and, or do that. Those things work by inflicting a, a little electrical shock through the collar of the dog's neck when he, uh, he gets too close to the fence. 
Before the dog gets a shock, however, he gets a series of beeps. Sometimes on some systems, they kind of warn him. The dog needs to turn around. He needs to uh, get, uh, get away from that fence or else they'll get into trouble. Well, this old dog knew what the fence would do. But if he saw something outside the fence, outside the yard that he wanted, he would still go get it. He would back up as far away from the fence as he could get, and he would bare his teeth, and then he would start to run toward the fence, and before he got to it, he'd start to howl, and he would run right through the pain. And he learned that if he ran hard enough and far enough, he would get beyond the range of the fence, the pain would stop, and he would get what he wanted. People who ignore the warning signs in their conscience are really doing the same thing. They're ignoring the pain of their heart and they keep running until the signal stops. And that's a dangerous game. As I said, the conscience must be trained. But it's not infallible. It only knows what it's been taught. And as a result, some people have an overactive conscience. People have been raised in an atmosphere of legalism. They've been taught that everything is wrong, uh, and it tends to have a, very, they have a very sensitive conscience. They may believe that some things are wrong when those things are, in fact, not wrong at all. Conscience can be trained by traditions. The person needs to retrain the conscience by the teaching of the truth of the Word of God. By the same token, some believers have a strong conscience and they know that they have liberty in the Lord. And yet they must always take into account their weaker brothers. They must not do things which would cause a weaker brother to violate their conscience. That's the teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-13, through 13, and we won't... Look at that this evening. But we need to be careful that we do not sear our conscience. That word sear that we found there in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2, it gives us our word, actually from the Greek, it gives us our word cauterize. It used to be that the soldiers on the battlefield would get wounded and they would cauterize their wound to stop the bleeding. It would seal off the blood vessels to to stop the bleeding. The word originally meant to brand or to mark by branding. Branding, of course, leaves a scar. You know, if you have a scar someplace that you've had over time from, from from an accident or from some kind of a serious cut, you have no nerve endings there where that scar is anymore. It cannot feel. A conscience that becomes seared is a conscience that ceases to feel. And we dare not let that happen to us. So this is how the conscience is seared. Secondly, notice tonight how the conscience is stirred. The brothers of Joseph 
have allowed their hearts to become very hard. They have seared their consciences and they have ceased to feel. And these verses, the Lord uses several events to bring their consciences back to life. And by the way, God knows how to rip the callus right off of a hard heart. And so that's what we're going to see here in these verses. Notice, first of all, God uses problems to stir them. And, <coughs> excuse me, the problem that God orchestrated to awaken the dead consciences of these men was a worldwide famine. Over in Genesis uh, 41 here in verse 56 and 57, it says, And the famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians, and the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, because that the famine was so sore in all lands. These men would have had no reason to go to Egypt otherwise. In fact, I believe they knew where Joseph was taken when they sold him as a slave. And so, perhaps, they knew exactly where Joseph was. I believe the fact is exactly what they were thinking about in chapter 42 and verse 1. Now, when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? Here Jacob is telling them, you know, they've got corn over there in Egypt. And the boys start looking at each other. Uh Uh-oh. We know where Joseph is. These men had also heard that there was grain down in Egypt. They were probably thinking, Egypt? Well, that's where Joseph is. And if we go down there, we might run into him. The famine had begun to awaken them and in them some of the feelings that they had been buried long ago. And so God used this problem to stir them. Secondly, God uses people to stir them. In verse 2 and 3 of chapter 42 here it says, And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. So these boys head out to Egypt. Their father refuses to allow them to take Benjamin with them. Jacob's words there in verse 4 seem to indicate that Jacob still had some doubts about their involvement in Joseph's disappearance. The whole story just didn't seem to make sense to him. Notice there in verse 4 it says, But Benjamin... Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. I don't think Jacob trusted these boys. And so when the brothers arrive in Egypt, Joseph recognizes them right away. And in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 42, it says, And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan, and Joseph was the governor over the land, and he It was that sold to all people of the land, and Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. 
I think Joseph was probably waiting and watching for them all, uh, all the time to show up. Well, they didn't recognize him because he had adopted the Egyptian dress and appearance. The Hebrews had dressed in long robes and the Egyptians wore shorter uh, garments. The Hebrews wore beards and the Egyptian men shaved both their faces and their heads. So they didn't recognize him. Joseph used this opportunity to turn the screws on these men and he speaks roughly to them. He accuses them of being spies. There in verse 9 it says, And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed of them and said unto them, Ye are spies to see the nakedness of the land. Ye are come. God used problems to stir them. God used people to stir them. And then thirdly, God uses pain to stir them. When they are accused of being spies, they try to defend themselves. And so we look at verses 10 through 14, and we see there it says, And they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said, The servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. And Joseph said unto them, That is that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. Joseph concocts a plan to really make them sweat it out. First, he demands that they send one of their number back home to get Benjamin and bring him back as proof of their story. And so we read there in verses 15 and 16, Hereby ye shall be proved by the life of Pharaoh, ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether they be of any truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. Well, of course, they protested, and so Joseph throws them into prison. In verse 17 it says, And he put them all together into ward three days. And then Joseph allows nine of the brothers to return home to get Benjamin while one of them remains in prison. Verse 18 through 20 says, And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. Well, what choice did they have? What else could they do? Now I went through all that to remind us that God will do what it takes to awaken your conscience. If you are a child of God and you have seared your conscience, God will do what it takes to awaken that conscience when you've allowed it to become seared. These men would never have thought of Joseph again had it not been for this, this famine. The famine drove them to Egypt. The trip to Egypt brought them face to face with their brother. Their treatment in Egypt awakened their thoughts, these thoughts in their hearts, and these thoughts that had lain dormant for two decades. They hadn't thought about Joseph for a long time. But now God uses these harsh measures 
to get their attention, to stir their hearts, to stir their conscience. And he has them on the road to repentance and renewal. If you belong to the Lord and you've allowed your conscience to become hardened, you need to know that you're going to wander off. Uh, uh, you need to know what, that you're going to wander off into sin. Your conscience will cease to warn you of the evil and you will fall. But if you're God's child, he will not allow you to remain in that condition forever. He will come and get you and he will use whatever it takes to awaken your conscience. For Joseph's brothers, God uses problems, people, and pain. For David, God used a man of God who was willing to confront a king. For David, God used the death of a child. For Samson, God used a Philistine prison, the loss of his eyes and the loss of his strength. For Peter, God used a little girl by a Roman fire. Who knows what he'll have to do and to what to, he'll have to use in your life and my life. But one thing is sure, he will use whatever it takes to get our attention to resurrect the conscience we tried to kill. We've looked at how the conscience is seared. We've looked at how the conscience is steward. Notice finally the, how the conscience is saved. Look at verse 21 through 23. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child. And ye would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required, and they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. We see here as the story continues that the brothers have reached a place where their consciences have come back to life. They're certain that their troubles all stem from their treatment of Joseph. And they began to confess their sin, not knowing that Joseph could understand them. A secret that has remained buried for 20 years begins to come to the surface. Look at verse 24. It says, And he turned himself about from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. And Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. And thus did he unto them. And they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. And as one of them opened his sack to give his as provender to the end, in the end he espied his money. For behold, it was in the sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them. And they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God, what is this that God hath done unto us? Joseph sends nine brothers home, keeps Simeon in the prison. He sends his brother home with the grain they need to live, and he puts their money back. And when they find this, they're filled with fear and conviction that God is actively working in their lives. They think God is out to get them for what they've done. They think that God has, is intent on their destruction. But in reality, God is intent on bringing them back to himself. 
As I said before, God knows how to get our attention. If we can take anything away from this chapter tonight, it's the truth that the conscience can be cleansed. If we've allowed our conscience to become dirty and damaged, it can be restored. Notice here how you can restore your conscience to a place of purity. First of all, confess and forsake all known sin. Confess and forsake all known sin. Consider your your life in the light of God's Word. Deal with your sins God's way. Get them out into the open through confession. Proverbs 28 verse 13 talks about how God is a merciful God. Of course, we know 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's true for a seared conscience as well. Psalm 32 Verse 5 talks about acknowledging and confessing and being forgiven. That's what Joseph's brothers did. And that's what we need to do as well. Secondly, seek forgiveness and reconciliation. If there's someone that we've wronged, then seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Before we can be right with God, we must be right with our fellow man. Matthew 5 In verses 23 and 24, as well as chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, talk about before we worship God, we need to make things right with those that we have a problem with. You come to church with a a, a sinful heart, with, with something against someone else, your worship to God is meaningless unless you have your hearts right with that person that either has offended you or you have offended. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Thirdly, make restitution to those you've wronged. The Old Testament commanded this in Numbers chapter chapter 5. The New Testament reaffirms this as well. We see this in the passage in Luke chapter 19 and verse 8 when it talks about Zacchaeus, how he restored... uh, Uh, to those that he had uh, robbed, and also in the book of Philemon, verse 19. And then fourthly, don't wait to cleanse a wounded conscience. Don't wait. When you have violated your conscience by ignoring its voice, deal with your guilt immediately. In Acts chapter 24 and verse 16, it, it talks about having a conscience void of offense. If you allow the guilt to remain, it will fester in your life. Your spiritual life will, be, uh, will deteriorate. You will experience depression and anxiety and other emotional problems. The guilt will remain long after the offense has been forgotten. So we need to get things right fast. Don't wait. And then, number five, educate your conscience. If you have a conscience that's easily violated, train it to the things of the Lord. Feed it the pure word of God, not the teachings and the traditions of men. Psalm 119 talks about hiding God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. That's a tremendous way to train your conscience. Hiding God's word in your heart. 
We must not train the conscience based on what our parents say or based on what old traditions have taught us or based on what some preacher has said. But to have a pure conscience, we must train it on the Word of God alone. Let the Bible be your guide. That's the model you should have. Not let your conscience be your guide. Let the Bible be your guide, and your conscience then will become a trustworthy friend. People may silence the conscience in this life, but one day it will speak up loud and clear. When you stand before the judgment, your conscience will agree with every judgment that is handed down by a holy God. Every person in this room needs to look within their hearts and examine the condition of his or her conscience. Is your conscience pure this evening? Is it helping you live for the Lord as it sounds the alarm when you approach thin ice in your life? Has your conscience been telling you, pull up, pull up? What has been your response? Have you been pulling up or have you been saying, shut up, gringo? You flip the switch and you kill the system. Maybe your conscience hasn't spoken to you in a long time. Tonight would it be a good time for you to come before the Lord and start the process of purifying your soiled and seared conscience. Let's pray. Father in heaven.